Welcome to 15 Minutes on the Way, Season 4, a podcast in God's voice telling His side of your story. In our last episode, Israel had begun to play with fire by doubling up its worship of both me and the local gods. And like a parent with children, I level consequences on Israel that are directly related to their dangerous behavior in order to teach them to leave the fire alone. In this case, those consequences are attacks by the people left in the land. Then, like a child who says they're sorry for what they've done after they've been caught in the act and suffered the punishment for it, Israel turns back to me and asks for forgiveness and help. When they do, I go ahead and send them a new judge to make things right. And things go well for the rest of that judge's life. Israel is supposed to mature, though, and break the cycle, trusting and following me without the need for grammar school-level scolding and rehabilitation through the judges. If only they would fully turn to me to lead and care for them, this cycle of repeated downward spirals would stop. Well, that's not going to happen in the book of Judges, but there are still some good moments along the way to look at that are both entertaining and useful for our purposes. The pattern we've just described is going to persist through it all, and we are not going to take the time to look at each and every judge's story. You can have at that yourself in the owner's manual. At 21 chapters, the book of Judges is a pretty quick read. For now, though, there are four people that stick out in particular, three judges and one other highly unlikely hero. And before you go any further with your picture of somebody in black robes sitting high atop a wooden dais handing out verdicts as the definition of a judge, let me just say that, well, there will be some of that. I mean, after all, it is the guilt of Israel that triggers the need for me to send a judge in the first place. But while they sort out the problems within Israel, the judges also rally the people to push back the growing threat from those pesky leftover populations. This pushback by the judges comes in many forms, from leading a military strike force, to black ops assassination, to wailing on hundreds of enemies single-handedly with nothing but an ox goad, uh, think cattle prod only bigger, all done by judges. There will be twelve judges in all. By now you recognize that symbolism. And while it would have been particularly poignant for me to pull one judge from each of the twelve tribes over time, it doesn't quite work that way. Though seven tribes are represented by the end. We'll just let their numbers symbolize my care for the entire people in the dozen tribes. Most unlikely of the four we'll look at, who actually comes fourth in the grand total of the twelve judges, there'll be in all, is Deborah. Those of you who've mastered the habitat issue just felt the earth move under your feet. Sure, we've had Moses' sister on the scene, and all kinds of wives in our story, but they all functioned as sisters or wives of the men who were the primary players in it. Not so with Deborah. Yes, she is someone's wife, a bright fellow by the name of Lapidoth. However, he gets to be the merely mentioned one here, 
while Deborah the prophetess judges Israel. The account of her judgeship begins in Judges 4. Her gift of prophecy obviously equips her well for the position, and the people have great respect for her guidance and discernment. That in itself is a pretty big deal in terms of the habitat Deborah is serving in. But that's nothing compared to her giving military orders, which, of course, she's about to do. You see, because of their most recent cycle of faithlessness, northern Israel in particular is now under the thumb of a Canaanite king, Jabin, and his cruelly effective general, Sisera. Deborah knows her people and her habitat well. She knows they trust her wisdom, but also knows they'd think she's gone crazy should she ever try to lead an army by herself. So when I tell her the time is ripe to attack the dreaded Jabin Sisera duel, Deborah calls on a man by the name of Barak, no relation, a fellow from the tribe of Naphtali, who hails from the town of Kadesh, which just happens to be due north of Jabin's seat of power, Hatzor. So first of all, Barak knows the territory well. Deborah relays to him what I revealed to her. I am totally going to handle this general Sisera for them, even if the Canaanite general does have a good number of technologically advanced chariots. Uh, don't mishear this. The chariots were not equipped with GPS or rocket launching systems. The chariots were the advanced technology and gave a distinct advantage to those who possessed them. Not quite the same as tanks against foot soldiers, but the army possessing chariots was always heavily favored to win, like pretty much anyone playing the Chicago Cubs prior to my intervention on their behalf in 2016. I basically just want 10,000 Israelites from the north to show up. Barak's response to Deborah is the most surprising part of the scene. He gives conditional assent to my call. He'll do it, but only if Deborah goes along with him into battle at the head of the troops. Again, that's habitat-busting talk there, friend, and I am all for moving a culture along in its maturity in this regard. But Barak's purpose with this request is not to make a military champion out of a woman and thus wake the world up to her equal stature with him. No, his purpose here is to cover his behind. You see, he's suffering from a lack of faith in my word. Once again, we have a case of my making a promise, issuing a command that will enact that promise, and then the human agent in that promise and command, in this case Barak, thinking something extra needs to be added to the mix in order to make it happen. Uh, think Moses nailing the rock with his staff when I told him and Aaron just to speak a command over it. Something extra I never listed with the ingredients. In this case, Barak wants Deborah to come along because she's my representative at the time. He figures he's got to win if she's there on site when the truth is that his winning is solely dependent on whether I am there on site. Again, my saying, I'll be there, should have sufficed. Deborah consents and goes along, but also levels the prophecy that the victory and glory of the day will belong to a woman, not to Barak. 
He's still a major agent of victory, though, and leads 10,000 outmatched men against Sisera's superior army at the appointed time. Of course, I throw the Canaanite army into a panic and make things easy for Barak and his warriors. But the glory of conquering Sisera himself is withdrawn from Barak because of his lack of faith. Naturally, when Deborah says a woman will win the victory that day, Barak thinks that Deborah is referring to herself. You were thinking the same thing, I might add. He's cool with that because she'd be right there at his side and people would sort of lump them together in the history books, and being remembered as a hero with a woman as his partner in victory would be a whole lot better than being run over by chariots and bleeding to death in the mud. However, Deborah is not talking about herself, as you'll see here in a minute. So here we are in the battle, and I've thrown all of General Sisera's army into confusion, in part by sending a flash flood down the Kishon River that caught a good number of them by surprise. Now we're in Judges 5.21, if you want to track with me. It's pandemonium down there, and the Canaanites are as disorganized as they can be. Sisera sees the jig is up. He abandons his chariot and beats feet away from the battle. It just so happens that the tents of a breakaway clan of Canaanites, uh, Canaanites are a flavor of Midianite, from whence Moses' wife came, remember? Moses invited his in-laws along to the promised land in Numbers 10.29, and this particular clan was staking a claim up north, not expecting to have a battle in their backyard like this. So these Canites are situated nearby. Uh, the name Canite means blacksmith, by the way, and they are cool customers and had made it clear to their neighbor King Jabin, remember he's Sisera's commander-in-chief, that they're not Israelites and have no interest in his territory in Hatzor. So Jabin has left them alone in peace, which makes a whole lot of sense since smiths are worth their weight in precious metal at the time. Good people to stay on good terms with, you could say. Knowing the ins and outs of all the politics of the kingdom, General Sisera thus heads for the Kenite tents, thinking they'll be the Switzerland of his day, neutral in the conflict at hand. The clan leader's wife, Yael, even says she'll hide him in her tent when he comes near. Sisera lays down in the corner, and she throws a rug over him to conceal the rascal. He's already hot, thirsty, and tired from battle, and asks for a drink of water. Here's where you can tell this lady has something up her sleeve. Instead of water, she gives the Canaanite general milk to drink. The man is very thirsty, so he drinks a lot. Now, what did your mother give you to drink in the middle of the night if you couldn't fall asleep? Well, Warm milk is the only kind of milk available in this refrigerator-free habitat. So our man Sisera has a belly full of warm milk while he lays under a thick rug after the extreme exertion of a day of battle. And just like your mama's cure for insomnia had you back to sleep in no time, Yael's warm milk has the enemy general sawing logs lickety-split. Before we continue, a spoiler alert. If you don't want a somewhat gruesome image lodged in your memory, skip ahead by 30 seconds. 
not that I am going to go into gory detail, but still, listen on at your own peril. Given that Yael's husband comes from a long line of blacksmiths, there's no shortage of metal objects around the house. Also in her favor is the fact that she's had to creep away from a sleeping baby without waking it countless times, so sneaking in silence to the general's snoring side with her homespun weapon in hand is a walk in the tented park for her. She quietly kneels beside his sleeping form. He's sleeping on his side. Of course, his head's out from under the covers, it was suffocating trying to breathe under that rug, and once you fall asleep, all bets are off, right? I mean, when you're hot in the middle of the night, there's no telling how much cover you'll have kicked off by morning. So with clear, unobstructed access to his exposed temple, and with the ease and accuracy of someone accustomed to swinging a hammer, Yael deftly drives a long, sharp tent peg clear through Sisera's head through his temple and all the way out the other, driving the peg into the ground beneath. The great general is undone not by a warrior, not even by the practiced swing of a professional blacksmith's hand. Instead, he is craftily dispatched by the smith's wife, a woman. Yael is the woman Deborah spoke of, the one who would have the glory of triumph instead of Barak that day. Not that Barak doesn't do anything. He's on Sisera's tail when Yael tells Barak she has a surprise for him. Seeing his counterpart's demise, Barak spreads the word amongst the Hebrew forces that the enemy's general is dead, which emboldens Israel while taking all the wind out of the Canaanite sails. The battle re-engages with fresh, albeit lopsided fervor, and King Jabin's forces without a general are thoroughly trounced. Now for our mini-deconstruction of What's the Point. What do you think are some of the lessons in this episode we can hang our hats on, should we ever wear one? I hope you've got the whole lack of faith on Barack's part down. With humans, that's a recurring theme we'll keep banging away about, both in the owner's manual and in your journey as well, right? both in the people you look at and criticize, and in yourself when you're honest with me and that other person in your mirror. I don't mind returning to the same lesson time and again, because I've quite literally got all the time in the world. Again, if I say I will do something, I will do it. Live as if I am doing what I say I am doing, because part of its happening flows from your faithful living in my promised truth. That's another sentence you can rewind and listen to again. I also want to make sure you notice the shrewd wisdom and courageous resourcefulness of these two women, Deborah and Yael. Deborah is a daughter of Israel, but Yael is not. Both of them serve important roles in moving the plan forward, the plan that will redeem those within Israel and without. Israel is my chosen vessel through whom I shall eventually re-establish relationship with all humanity. This is a temporary yet crucial phase during which Israel is my favored focus in order to reach everyone in time. Deborah and Yael are thus a handy snapshot of both the current phase 
as seen in Deborah of my chosen people, and the time to come as seen in Yael, the outsider. We'll have more to say on this next time, but you've got plenty to think about. So have a wonderful week on the way, friend. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode has been a blessing to you. We've got a lot of wonderful ground to cover in future episodes. If you'd like to support what we do, share this with your friends. There's a link to the first episode right under today's podcast on our website, 15minutesontheway.com. Don't spell out the number. And feel free to give us a review on iTunes or on Facebook. 15 Minutes on the Way is sponsored by the Oak Haven Church in the Barn in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Oleksandr Zadoyani writes our theme music at smartmediamusic.com. Kenny Eicher designs our website art, kennyeicherart.com. We hope today's podcast has reminded you that you, friend, are part of an epic story that is still unfolding today. So keep walking on the way. And until next time, be good to yourself. Yeah.